questions up on the screen. It says, what is devotion? What is it? What does the word mean to you? And then what does it mean to be devoted to someone or something? What does that mean? Now, the, <clears throat> the picture we're showing you here is a man by the name of Charles Thomas Studd. C.T. for short. He was actually born in England in 1860. He was the son of a wealthy retired planter who had made his fortune in colonial India. He had returned to England with his family, uh, basically to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He was very wealthy. And C.T. appeared destined, really, to lead a charmed life. He was a child of privilege in many ways. He was educated at Eton College and also at Cambridge, schools that regularly produce the cream of the crop, members of parliament, high-ranking British government officials. By the time C.T. was 16, though, he had developed an athletic prowess that was undeniable. He had become a famous cricket player. And in England, that was huge back then. By the age of 19, he was the captain of his team at Eton College, and he later played in international matches. He was something of a sports celebrity in England, kind of like our big sports stars today. Interestingly, he accepted Christ at the age of 18, but he admitted that he wasn't really serious about his faith until six years later when his brother became seriously ill. It was then that C.T. was confronted with this question, and here's the way he wrote it. This is his own words. What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes face to face with eternity? That question haunted him. And as a result of that question and the experience of his brother's near-fatal illness, he later wrote, I knew that cricket would not last. And honor would not last. And nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. Think about that. It was worthwhile living for the world to come. God ultimately called CT into mission work. He was one of a group known as the Cambridge Seven. Seven young men who volunteered for missionary service in China. This did not go over well with members of his family. His mother was less than thrilled about the prospect of CT living half the world away. In fact, most of his loved ones, the people closest to him, opposed the idea. In an effort to comfort his mother, he wrote her a letter and said this, Mother dear, I do pray God to show you that it is such a privilege to give up a child to be used of God. Once in China, the Cambridge Seven lived and dressed in typical Chinese fashion, and C.T. learned Chinese. He became like them in order to reach them for Christ. Now, not long after arriving in China, C.T. inherited a massive sum of money from his father's estate. At the age of 25, he was incredibly wealthy. He proceeded to give all but a very small amount away to other ministries. He determined to keep this small amount as a nest egg for the day he would marry. Problem is, he married a missionary. Her name was Priscilla. She was a young Irish missionary, and she asked him 
What did the Lord tell the rich young man to do? The answer in the Bible is sell everything and give it away. And that's exactly what they did. They gave the rest of his inheritance away. They served in China for over a decade. From there, they moved to India and served there for a number of years. And then C.T. felt called to go and serve in Central Africa. By this time, he was virtually penniless and somewhat in poor health. The mission organization that had agreed to support him in his work backed out at the last minute. And he wrote this missionary group and said this, Gentlemen, God has called me to go, and I will go. I will blaze the trail, though my grave may only become a stepping stone that younger men may follow. At 49 years of age and against medical advice, C.T. left England for Africa. He served in the Congo for the next 21 years. One biographer wrote this. He said, C.T. staked all on obedience to God. As a young man, he staked his career. In China, he staked his fortune. In India, he staked his health. And in Africa, he staked his life. On July 16, 1931, at the age of 70, C.T. Studd died due to complications from untreated gallstones in the Central African Republic of the Congo. His ministry impacted thousands from England to China, India to Africa. His devotion to Jesus Christ continues to impact people to this very day. His life serves as an example for people all around the world. And his words continue to speak to us if we'll pause just for a moment to actually think about them and take them in. Because you see, every one of us walks past his words every time we enter this ministry center. They become something of an unofficial motto of Good News Gathering. Words that capture our aspirations for what this church should be. Words that describe what Christ has called this church to be. His words are emblazoned on the wall in the atrium. And they go like this. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. You see, C.T. Studd did not see Christianity as just going to church. He didn't view it as some easygoing, stand-for-nothing, risk-nothing, sacrifice-nothing, fair-weather faith. That's not the way he viewed Christianity. He saw it as a challenging call to action. A call that demanded his very best, total obedience, relentless commitment, absolute devotion. That's how he viewed Christianity. Now friends, we're in the final week of our lesson series entitled, Following Together. And during this lesson series, we've been stretching our understanding of of what it means to be a Christian. And we've been grappling with some very hard truths that Jesus taught. Truths that force us to examine whether our view of Christianity is is casual. Is it just something that we do for 75 minutes on a Sunday, but it doesn't really affect how we live the rest of our life throughout the week? Jesus also taught us truths during this past five weeks that push us to question whether we become cultural Christians. Are we, are we people who, who wear the name Christian but whose beliefs and behaviors really mirror our culture much more than they mirror Jesus Christ? You see, our desire here is, is not to be casual or cultural but to be an actual Christian. 
Not Christians in name only, but but people who have been radically changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. People who are committed to following him. Emulating his attitudes and his words and his actions. Obeying his call upon our lives, both as individuals and as a church family. That's not easy. It's hard. It's hard every day. Now, today's lesson is entitled Absolute Devotion. And I want you to think about that title for just a moment. Because those two words are huge words. They're jam-packed with meaning. And they're challenging words. I mean, you think about the word absolute. Absolute means complete, total, without limit. It's kind of like all in, all or nothing. And that word devotion is a, is a word that, that really no, no longer gets used a lot in our culture. Which is... Probably not surprising. Some social commentators have, have indicated that our culture is commitment phobic. So why would that word not be used so much today? It's because devotion signifies commitment that is tenaciously lived out day in and day out. That's what it means to be devoted. Now for purposes of today's lesson... We're defining the word devotion as follows. And the lights are coming up because I want you to look on your outline. And for those of you, it's your first time at Good News. It's a, it's a white sheet with holes punched on the side. And it's got all the scriptures that we'll be covering today. And I'll help you follow along with the lesson with some fill-ins and that, that sort of thing. But in the box at the very top of the outline, we have come up with a, a, a working definition of devotion that goes like this. Devotion is a profound, it's a profound dedication. Now when you think of those two words, profound means something, something deep, something that permeates every part of us, something that impacts every aspect of our lives. It's, it's profound, it's all-encompassing. And it's a profound dedication or commitment to the will of, the worship, and the service of God. A profound, a deep and permeating dedication or commitment to the will. In other words, it's that that ever-present question that we have on our lives. What is God's will for me? What is his desire for my life? How does he want me to live? How does he want me to act? How does he want me to treat the people around me? But not just his will, but... A profound dedication to the worship. In other words, to lifting God up in every area of my life. To making him known by everything that I do and say. In service. To serve whenever, wherever, and however he needs me to serve. And you know, I love that, I love that <laughs> video that was shown just before the teaching began of all the different service projects that this church has been involved in throughout this, this summertime. And, and it included everything from the free sale and rice and bean packing and the, the G garden, which grows vegetables and stuff like that to distribute to, to um, food banks in the area and also to, to just people in need that, that, that we're aware of. All those different things that that have been done over the past few months are are examples of how we as a church family are trying to live out that profound dedication to the will, the worship, and the service of God. You know, that phrase profound dedication reminds me of of what that biographer wrote about C.T. Studd. He said, C.T. staked I love that word. He staked. In other words, with his life, he drove a stake in the ground. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is how I will live my life. He staked everything on obedience to God. His career, his fortune, his health, his life. That's profound dedication. That's absolute devotion. 
And when you think about it, it sounds strikingly similar to the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote this. He said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, doesn't doesn't matter what it is, whatever is going on in your life, how you operate, every aspect of life is committed. My words, my deeds, my work, my life, how I treat my spouse, how I treat my children, how I treat my coworkers, how I treat my friends. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now our focus verse for this series is Romans 12.5. It's up here on the screens. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In Christ, in other words, all of us who follow Christ... In Christ, though we are many, and we come from many different backgrounds, we have different histories, we have different family experiences, yet we form one body because we are all one in Christ. And we belong to each other. And we need each other in order to fulfill his purpose in us and in the world around us. And we need each other in order for any of us to achieve absolute devotion. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us and for this opportunity that we have to dig into some things that Jesus said that are inspiring, they're challenging, they're troubling, and yet they're true. And so, Father, we as followers have to wrestle with these words. We have to think about them and how they apply to us. And so, Father, help us to approach your word this morning with open minds and hearts and ears that are willing to hear your voice as you speak to us. Help us, Father, for this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, friends, today's account is believed to have occurred early in the third year of Jesus' three-year ministry, okay? So the Bible indicates that Jesus conducted three extensive and extended tours through the region of Palestine that is known as Galilee, okay? Now, as you look on the map that's up there on the screens, you see Galilee. It's in yellow there at the top in the the northern part of Palestine. Um, it's, It's bordered on one side by the Sea of Galilee, which is, which is kind of famous because um, that's where Jesus walked on the water. That's also where he fed 5,000 people. Um, scholars believe they were probably on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee when that miracle happened. It's also where his hometown was located, Nazareth, and also where his ministry headquarters was located, which is a city called uh, Capernaum, which was, which was on the Sea of Galilee. That's also where most of the apostles were from, is that area known as Galilee. In fact, some scholars believe that only one apostle didn't come from there, and that would be Judas. They believe that he was Judean, okay, coming from the, the um, southern part of Palestine. And you can see it on your map. Uh, that'll get pointed out here in just a, just a moment. But this, the southern area of Palestine was known as Judea, and that's where Jerusalem is located the center of um, political and, and um, religious uh, life in, in Palestine at that time. And also that's where Jesus was born in the, in the city of, or the village actually of, of Bethlehem in the south. In between those two areas was the area known as Samaria. That was centrally located 
it was populated by a group of people who had been inhabited by um, foreigners, let's put it that way, and they'd been placed there by an invading army um, several centuries before uh, the time that Jesus walked the earth. Now, let me give you a sense of, of the size of Galilee so you have some idea of this tour these guys were on. At its greatest length from north to south, okay, Galilee was about 63 miles long. So think Hillsborough to Columbus, okay? That gives you an idea of how long, how, how far it was going north to south in Galilee. East to west was about 33 miles. So think Hillsborough to Chillicothe, okay? So you have a swath of land about the size of Hillsborough to, to Columbus and Hillsborough to Chillicothe. And remember, these guys are on foot, okay? Now, according to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, that swath of land contained about 240 towns and villages with a population estimated at about 3 million people, okay? So now you understand, in order to get the word out, Jesus made an extensive tour through that region in each of the years of his ministry, all three. Now, the very first year when he went, that actually occurred before he had assembled the 12 apostles. So on that first tour, he went through Galilee. It was him and scholars believe just the four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. By the second year and his second tour through this area, he had assembled the 12 with him. But he went on the tour with the 12. And so basically what you see is you see Jesus gathering these guys around them and then letting them watch him work. And they watch him do ministry and teach and preach as he's traveling around. But then early in the third year of his ministry, and think probably somewhere 10 to 12 months before he would die on the cross, Jesus determined to conduct another tour through Galilee, but this one was different. This one was different. Instead of them accompanying him on the tour, this time he would send them out to do ministry, to share the good news without him being with them. And scholars estimate that these tours may have lasted anywhere from several weeks to four to six months in order for them to hit most of the area of Galilee. And as we look at this, we're going to discover as Jesus is giving instructions to these 12 before he sends them out, we're going to learn three truths about absolute devotion Now, I want you to understand that if you read Matthew chapter 10, you get his instructions right before he sent them out. And they're chock full of a lot of interesting information. And frankly, it's just, it's too much for us to cover in one lesson. So I'm going to cherry pick some passages out so that we can get at these three truths that I think are important for us to learn today. So three truths devoted followers grasp. And we're going to dip back into Matthew chapter 9 because it sets up chapter 10. It goes like this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And you think about what he's doing. He's going around and he's, he's healing people He's he's curing them of diseases and sickness, which you can imagine the crowds that would come out when when he was known to be in the area because, I mean, you know... Anybody that's sick could go, and, 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 and not only that, but he's teaching, and it's, it's this teaching like they've never heard before. But notice it tells us here the motivation. Jesus is on the move, and yet what's driving him? And it says this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Now, friends, the Greek word that has, the, the Greek words that have been translated harassed and helpless, picture sheep, okay? And you have to kind of get this in, in your head because when you're thinking about what motivated Jesus, you have, to, you have to try to see what he saw. When he saw people who were far from God, Because the word picture here that's being used is a picture of sheep who have been driven by wolves. And they're running from these wolves and they've run so long that they're they're dropping because they can't go any further. They're driven by terror and pursued and they're falling helpless and they're being mangled by wolves. That's the picture And it says he had compassion on people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw people who are not in relationship with God in that vein. And for for all of you who call yourselves Christians this morning, let me ask you a question. Have you ever viewed a person who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that way? Ever? I'll be honest with you, I I haven't. A lot of times I look at people who are far from God and I think, well... Man, that's too bad. Um, you know, I wish they got it. I wish, wish they understood why Jesus came and, and why he died on a cross for them and, and the fact that they can be forgiven and, and that God loves them so much that he sent his son. I, I wish they understood that. But, you know, they, they seem to be getting along okay. And, and that's kind of that. And I wonder how much more motivated I would be to reach out to people who are far from God if I saw them like Jesus does. If I actually viewed them, regardless of what their outer life looks like to me, as people who are harassed and helpless, chased by wolves, mangled, fatigued, Suffering, dejected. I wonder how that would change my view of the world and how much more motivated I would be to reach out to people. You see, friends, if if we're going to be absolutely devoted to Jesus Christ, we have to see the world through his eyes, not our own. And I don't know about you, but that's hard for me sometimes. And it's interesting to me, he, he, he has compassion on these people and they're harassed and helpless. And, and then he says to his disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, there's lots of people out here. Now, we're just going through Galilee right now, but there's tons of people right here and there's even more beyond. But the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So he's asking these these followers of his to pray that God would send workers into the field. It's interesting. Because the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 10, Jesus turns right around calls his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now notice this. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples. Circle the word disciples. And disciple just means a follower, okay? Or a student of a teacher, okay? In that, in that culture, it would have been a rabbi, okay? But notice that the, the, the name shifts, 
It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the name of the 12, names of the 12 apostles. Circle that word. This is the first time in the book of Matthew that the 12 are called the apostles. Okay? This is important. Because the apostle, the word apostle means one who is sent. One who is sent. And that's exactly what Jesus did. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. So Jesus had kind of not only changed the name that's getting used for them, but how he viewed them. They're not just learners now. They're not just students. Now they're being empowered to go out, to be sent out into the world, to share the good news with others. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he says something that that really just kind of catches your attention because you think of the power that he gave these guys. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, it's fascinating to me that as you read this whole chapter and you read about this missionary tour these guys went on, that even though our attention immediately goes to all this power they got, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, not once does the Bible record any miracle these 12 guys performed on this missionary tour. Not one. All this power, presumably they used it, and yet it never says a word about it. And I think it's because the message was what was important. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The miracles were there simply to support and confirm the message that the kingdom was near, that Jesus had come into the world sent by God. You know, I think it's fascinating where he had just told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. In other words, he's telling them, pray for people to go out. Pray for people to go into the harvest fields and bring in the harvest. To go out and reach people for me. And then he turns right around and says, oh, and by the way, that's you. (laughs) I hope you've been praying because God answered your prayer with you. You see, Absolute devotion requires me to go. It requires me to go. Jesus told his followers, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now you think about the message that they had, okay? What could they actually say? They couldn't say, Jesus died on a cross for your sins. They couldn't say, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, because none of that stuff had happened yet. That was still a year away. What could they say? The kingdom of heaven has come near. He's here. He's come from God. Come and see. And Jesus ended up that statement with freely you have received, freely give. In other words, you've received my presence you've been in my presence and you've received these gifts give them away you know I think about C.T. Studd they say he was driven by the harvest 
That's why he wanted to go to China because he, kept, he couldn't get off his mind the millions of people there that had no connection with Jesus Christ. And then in India and then in Africa, always looking for that harvest field that nobody had yet touched. And you know, friends, I think about you and I. Not all of us are called to go to a mission field that's on some foreign land. But every one of us is called to go into our homes. Every one of us is called to go into our schools. Every one of us is called to go into our workplaces. Because when Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers, he's saying, answer your own prayer. Answer your own prayer. Yes, pray for workers, but be one. You know, I often, I often think, is it my hope and prayer that God will send somebody else? Or do I approach him with the attitude of, here I am, send me? Now, Jesus goes on to say this, because he tells them, That as they go on this missionary journey, and he's not going to be with them, he tells them that there will be adversity at times. There will be difficulties. There will be times when they face opposition. There may be times that they face persecution. And he says this. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now you have to understand the the backdrop of what's going on while Jesus is, is, is making these statements. Because these guys are probably immediately thinking of John the Baptist. Because by this time, when this missionary journey began, John had already been arrested. He was being held in prison. And I can imagine these guys thinking, okay, you've been sent from heaven by God. John is the guy who was sent first to kind of proclaim that you were coming and to make sure everybody was aware that, you know, the kingdom of heaven was, was at hand and, 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 that, and that sort of thing. And now he's been, I mean, how's that work? What kind of sense does that make? And Jesus is telling them, don't. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He said, in other words, he's saying, you know what, there's a bigger picture out there, guys. This life isn't all there is. Don't get so wrapped up in this life that you can't see beyond it. He said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. In other words, something as, in our view, cheap or valueless as a sparrow, which is sold for a penny, doesn't die without God noticing. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. And Jesus is telling them, when you go out into the world and you face adversity and you face pushback or people don't like what you have to say or people don't agree with you, don't don't get wrapped up in that. Don't be afraid. God's still there. He still cares. And then he made this interesting statement. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I can imagine some of you guys are are probably thinking, wait wait, wait a minute. I mean, I don't read my Bible a lot, but I know somewhere in there it says that he is the prince of peace, right? So what what is this about? And friends... What Jesus, is, what Jesus is indicating here is that he came to bring peace between God and people. 
But in a world where people quite often reject the peace he brings, there is not peace. And when he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, think of what a sword does. A sword divides. It separates. And quite often that's what's happened. That's what happens. You think about it in a very mild way, C.T. Studd experienced it. Because the moment he decided to go into mission work, his family said no. No, 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 no. Look at what you're leaving. You're a world-class athlete. People know you. Your name's in the papers. You're going to China? What are you, crazy? You're due to inherit millions. And you're going to give that, what are you, you're going to give that, what are you thinking? I think it's interesting that Jesus goes on to say here, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. But Jesus doesn't stop, and he says something that comes across very harsh. But you and I just have to let this resonate with us. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Man, that's hard. You see, absolute devotion involves adversity. And there are times when absolute devotion to Jesus Christ requires us to make decisions and to do things that loved ones do not understand. Absolute devotion sometimes involves us in things that are difficult for us to accept. C.T. Studd had six children, four girls and two boys. Both boys died in infancy on the mission field. At the end of his wife, at the end of his life, C.T. Studd was in Africa. His wife was in England. There was a significant period of time when they were apart because she was ill. And she died in England while he was still in Africa. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being that far from my wife. Ever. And yet he believed that God had called him there. It was a tough situation. And I think about my own life and the choices I've made, and I wonder, you know, am I that devoted? If God placed a call of that sort on my life, would I go? Jesus went on to say this. He said, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the apostles, this is not how you recruit people. Okay? Because they'd all sing crosses. The Romans liked to put them on the roads leading into towns so that everybody who was coming in for the market had to walk by them. So everybody would be reminded on a daily basis, this is what's happened, this is what happens to you if you mess with us. Don't do that. And for Jesus to say, who does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me, had to be a stunning statement to the apostles. But here's what he was getting at. 
he goes on to say, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is one of those counterintuitive statements that Jesus liked to make. You, you think you're finding your life because you've, you've got it all going on in the here and now, but in the long range, you've really lost. And whoever finds their life in this life will lose it. And whoever loses their life or gives their life or absolutely devotes themselves to me will find real life. And friends, I think that third thing that we can learn from this story about absolute devotion is this. Absolute devotion requires an eternal perspective. You see, we have to think beyond the here and now if we're going to be absolutely devoted to Jesus Christ. If we are focused only on the here and now, we will never devote. It won't happen. That's why Jesus went on to say, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You see, friends, when you think about it, C.T. Studd understood this. If you remember, he said, nothing lasts. Nothing in this life lasts. Not cricket, not fame, not fortune, not health, not even life itself. But the world to come, the world that is beyond this life, that lasts. And friends... I think if you and I are going to be absolutely devoted to following Jesus Christ, then we have to remember that this is not all there is. There is more than meets the eye. We have to have an eternal perspective. And friends, it's crucial Because the Son of Man is coming. He's coming in His Father's glory with the holy angels. Never forget that. So friends, this morning, remember that absolute devotion requires us to go. It will involve adversity. Don't be surprised by that. And it requires an eternal perspective. Now, friends, if you would please take out the green communication connect card um, that you have in your bulletin. And if you've not already done this, what I would like you to do is if you look on the back, there's a box in the middle on the back of your connect card. And it lists the root services that are coming up next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. If you have not already turned in a card indicating what service you're going to be coming to, would you please do that this morning, all right? And you'll notice it lists each one of the services, and then there's a final box that says something like whenever needed, okay? Let me explain why we're asking you to do this. As you know, um, because you've all been here today, you have been practicing the Roots worship songs. And it's important, we believe, to have a critical mass of G&G people who are familiar with those songs to be in every service. So that when everybody who doesn't normally go to church or doesn't normally attend here hears 
the G&G family singing. It's an inspiration to them and an encouragement to them. And hopefully, those maybe who have no relationship with God will really listen into the words because they see the people around them singing the words that are up on the screens. And so we want to try and make sure we have a, a, a good number of, of G&G folks here for each service. And so if you know, if you can only attend a certain one, that's great. That's, that's fine. But... If you check that box that says whenever needed, if we see that the numbers are going to be kind of low in a particular service with G&G folks, we may contact you and say, hey, would you mind coming on Friday night or Saturday afternoon or whatever? And if that works with your schedule, that would be a huge help if you would do that for us. Now also, (laughs) I know that some folks have been uptight because you have... You have to be out of town this coming weekend. And you're like, man, I'm going to miss roots, and, and, and you're hating that. And some, some people have asked me about that. Let me, let me just say this. If you're going to be out of town this next weekend, absolutely can't be here. We're opening up dress rehearsal on Tuesday night for you, okay? So please, if you can't be here next weekend and you want to see roots, Come in on Tuesday night. Be here by 7.30, no later than that, or you'll miss, the, you'll miss the beginning. But at least be here by then, and you'll get to see the dress rehearsal, okay? And to be honest with you, friends, it, it, that, would, that would be kind of a help uh, to the band <laughs> to have some folks out there in the audience to kind of get a feel for whether or not it's, it's impacting uh, as we hope that it will. Um, so that's, that's something that, that you can do. <clears throat> One last thing. Remember what Christ has called us to. He's called us to go, to reach out to others with the good news. Each one of you knows somebody who needs to be here this next weekend. Somebody who has no relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, God wants you to pray that he will send workers into the harvest field. But you're one of those people. This week, be the answer to that prayer. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. And for this opportunity that we have had to read the words that Jesus spoke to the twelve. On that day that they, they took on a new role. Not just learners and followers as we all are, but now apostles sent sent with a message that the kingdom of heaven is near. Father, help us to be a church that is sent, that feels the calling that you've placed upon us and help us to reach people with the good news of your son. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, amen.